If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast guest is Professor Stephen Baxter, a world-leading expert on Doomsday Book, which is the survey of England carried out during the reign of William I in the mid-1080s. Stephen is Clarendon Professor of Medieval History and Baron Fellow in Medieval History at St Peter's College, Oxford. He's just published a new interpretation of Doomsday Book in an article in the English Historical Review called How and Why Was Doomsday Made? This article is one of the results of a project investigating the medieval manuscript, which is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and led by Principal Investigator Julia Crick and co-investigators Stephen Baxter and Peter Stokes. Our Content Director, David Musgrove, called Professor Baxter to find out more. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Uh, Today we're going to talk about Doomsday Book, the land survey of England that was conducted at the end of William the Conqueror's reign, and he died in 1087. Um, So before we jump into this, can we just sort of cover off some basic points about this? Um, Is it Doomsday Book or the Doomsday Book? (laughs) Um, I think Doomsday Book for preference. Um, um, yes, and um, and also the Doomsday Survey as a whole um, is is important to have in mind. Doomsday Book is iconic, profoundly important, but just one output from a process. And and the whole Doomsday Survey took place. It was commissioned in late 1085 and was and was undertaken in 1086. Um, and Doomsday Book was put together towards the end of the process, towards the end of 1086 and 1087. So. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's Doomsday Book, and it's one output of an iconic and important process. Brilliant. We will get into that in a second. And, and why is it called Doomsday? What's the what's the reason for that? And when did that um, get uh, get allocated to the to the survey and the book? Yeah. Well, um, uh, it it was our first sort of record of that is in fact late 12th century, um, um, when um, someone who worked at the centre of royal government described the machinery of the treasury and described this this important book and described it as the doomsday book um, and said it was known um, in the vernacular um, as doomsday, invoking the day of judgment because it was such an awesome phenomenon. Um, we don't know whether, whether the text was uh, given that name at a much earlier date. Earlier, it was known as the King's Book or the Book of Winchester, had various other names, but uh, we know for certain it was called Doomsday about a century after its production. Um, and what, what what is actually in Doomsday Book itself? What's, what is the nature of the content that's in it? Hmm. Well, it's um, divided up into shires. So that's the first subdivision. And as you enter each, each shire, you're given a list of landholders, landholders who held directly from the king. They're the major barons in the kingdom. Um, and as you then turn the pages, the material is organised, describing, a, giving a description of each parcel of land, um, about 29,000 parcels of land in total. Um, but the material is organised by the names of barons within shires. So that's the kind of the, the very basic nuts and bolts of, of this uh, of this document and, and the survey, the larger survey that you talked about. Um, so you've been working on this for, for many years and you've, you've been doing this uh, this really interesting project uh, recently, which uh, and there's been a, 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 an article that you've just put out with the English Historical Review, which uh, uh, was called How and Why Was Doomsday Made? And you talk in that about the process of the, of the creation of the survey and, and the book itself. And it's a fascinating read. So um, I want to try and get into some of the, the key findings that, that you've talked about. And one of the things that you're you're talking about is is the speed in which this operation took place. Um, so is it fair to say that you're suggesting um, that it was it took place more quickly than perhaps other academics have suggested in the past? Yes, and much more quickly than I had expected. As you say, I've been studying Doomsday for a long time and 
Um, but in the last few years, we've had an opportunity to study the earliest manuscript of the survey and have found ourselves surprised, in some cases astonished, by the material it seems to be telling us. Um, and it's allowed us to, to unpack the process by which Doomsday was made. And yes, one of the first things that struck us was that it is apparent that the survey was probably made before Easter in 1086, having been launched at Christmas. Um, and Easter fell on 5th of April in 1086, so that's 100 days, more or less. Um, so the first draft of the survey was taken with astonishing speed. Um, and that material, that information was then real checked and reorganised, each time producing different cuts of the information, different pieces of structured information, different types of document that were intended for particular purposes. So, I mean, listeners may think that this sounds familiar. It's a bit like a modern database in which you enter material um, uh, initially and then draw structured information from it, a bit like, uh, as I say, modern database queries. All this was done with pen, parchment, ink and human interaction in a matter of months. We think the uh, um, the survey was was made, checked and reorganised on a couple of occasions, all before the 1st of August, that all the landholders of any account then came to the king and performed homage, part for what the, the survey contained. And it was at that point that the final product, known as Doomsday Book, was drafted uh, over a number of months, um, June, late 1086 and 1087. But the survey then behind Doomsday was done at breakneck speed. So, can we go back to um, to the to the to the first moment when the survey was mooted um, and uh, and the political context that uh, that it was developed in? So, um, so it was in it was Christmas ten eighty five that it was first talked about. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, and the background there was that um, of a threat of invasion. In fact, um, earlier on in ten eighty five, William the Conqueror was doing his usual thing, fighting wars in, in, in northern France, when news came to him that uh, um, the Vikings were coming again. Danish King Knut, um, in alliance with the Count of Flanders, was planning to invade England. And with absolutely characteristic vigour, William dropped everything, mobilised one of the largest armies he'd ever mobilised, crossed, crossed the channel into England, laid waste the land... Uh, near the shores to prevent uh, invaders from taking a foothold. He strengthened his castles um, and waited. But the invasion didn't come, and it became apparent that it had been delayed. So there, suddenly, William Conqueror was, and this was quite rare late in the reign, he was in England with almost all of the landholders and major barons in the kingdom, and it was at this point, at the Christmas Assembly, which took place in Gloucester, that a decision was made to launch the Doomsday Survey. Now, this leaves us as a problem. Was the Doomsday Survey, as it were, a response to the threat of invasion? Um, um, or was it, as it were, a logistical um, um, phenomenon? Uh, was it launched, had it been planned for a long time, and launched now just because everyone was in the right place and because there was an army to get things done if necessary. Um, my own suspicion is the latter, um, that this had been planned by some clever officials in the king's, in the heart of the king's government for some time and they'd been waiting for the opportune moment. And now this pause in the campaigning cycle of the king and the fact that everyone was in England and the fact that the king could give it his personal energy meant that the bu button was pushed. I mean, that must surely have been the case, that the latter option you described, because how, otherwise how else would they have been able to, to get everything moving in with such rapidity? Well, um, indeed. And um, I think, Kev, you know, the, the sheer complexity and sophistication of what happened next indicates careful planning. This wasn't, as it were, done in a crisis or planned in, you know, in, a, in a crisis in the last months of 1085. Probably it had been planned for several years by smart individuals who, as I say, were at the heart of the Congress government and knew how to make it better. So how, how do we understand the planning process? Because I assume there's not a document that says this is how we did it. How, how do we know what was, what, was, um, what was going through people's minds in, in 1085 at Gloucester? Yeah, well, we've got um, three 
precious texts outside of Doomsday. Um, one is the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the Annal for 1085 and 1086, um, which was written by a near-contemporary. Um, and um, so there's a, a near-contemporary description. Um, we also have a description of the survey by a bishop um, who was a participant in the survey, which adds critical information. And lastly, we have a later copy of what we think are the terms of reference, the, the questionnaire that uh, informed the survey, which survives in an early manuscript. So those, those three pieces of information are of profound importance. Otherwise, we have to work backwards, work backwards from the outputs from the survey itself, um, so from Doomsday Book, but also from the other texts and, crucially, manuscripts which survive from the process. And the really important thing about um, a document known as Exxon Doomsday, which survives in Exeter Cathedral Library, is it is that document is the earliest manuscript of the survey, was written in the summer of 1086, about halfway through the process. And from that, we can infer um, what the scribes were working on at that point um, and work backwards towards the start of the survey. And also we can see what the the scribe who wrote Doomsday Book did with this information. So it allows us to see the process much more fully. Right. And the X on Doomsday is the, is the document that you've been particularly looking at to, 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 to inform your current research. So um, we'll probably talk about that a little bit more in a second, because mm. one of the things you do in, in your article in the English Historical Review is you, is you separate out five stages of the, of the process in which the, uh, the survey is carried out. Could you, could you have a go at um, just uh, giving us that five-stage process in as a sort of concise and uh, understandable way as you can? Okay. Um, sure. Five stages are, firstly, the launch. Um, and this is the point at which I think everyone was briefed and specific instructions were, were made. Um, the kingdom was divided up into seven great circuits, each consisting of five shires, usually contiguous shires, but the east, eastern part of England, um, Norfolk, Suffolk and Essex were, were surveyed together. So the kingdom was subdivided and commissioners, um, agent, royal agents, were given instructions to undertake the survey and they were given their, their terms of reference. So that's one, the launch. Uh, it's Christmas and probably the news is fired out, um, as it were, not by Twitter or email, but by um, writs sent out to the shire courts, uh, which are read out. And so um, the, the, the terms of reference to the survey are made publicly known at that point. We're in December, early January. The second stage of the survey um, was the production of its first draft. And it was done, this was done in a ge geographical order. It was based on existing tax records, which were organised in a geographical order by Shire and within the, the subdivisions of each Shire. Um, and uh, what the kings did not know at this stage about each parcel of property was what the manorial reality, what the economic reality behind tax assessments was. And so information was supplied by landholders about peasants, about livestock and other things. And um, uh, for the first time, it became apparent how much money each manor was, was generating. So stage two, production of a geographically arranged survey. And that was delivered to the king, we think, at Winchester at Easter. Stage three then, and the conqueror must have been pretty pleased to have been there. He had it, a survey of all of England south of, south of the Tees, um, 5,000 um, villes covered, hundreds of manors, about 29,000 parcels of property, all done within 100 days. But he wasn't satisfied. Amongst other reasons, he wanted it checked publicly. Um, so the instructions were for another set of commissioners to go back to local um, shire courts. The shire was the basic um, subdivision of the kingdom in this period, and it was used to holding um, shire courts. But these were extraordinary meetings um, where tens of thousands of, of um, lesser landholders were dragooned into these public courts and asked to swear and attest to the veracity, the truthfulness of each, um, of each entry. And each entry was read out and in some cases, uh, the material was contested. So stage three is this checking phase done in public, and the output from it was a list of contested property. Um, property could be contested for lots of different reasons. Um, but uh, at this point, the text was marked up, if you like, saying, hmm, this one looks a bit dodgy. 
Can I just interrupt your stating? This is this is really good. But the, but in the in the in the article, you talk about how the, these these um these events would have been dramatic. This stage three um uh, section with all these people gathered in in the in uh, in public gatherings and, and people sort of disputing what was going on. Do you, do you get a sense of the drama of these events? Yeah, it, was, it must have been astonishingly dramatic. Um, there there were jurors who were um required to be in even numbers, French and English. Um, and assembled were the major landholders of each shire. And there must have been that, that dramatic auction moment when each each um, uh, dis- manorial description is read out. And the commissioners asked, is this right? Has anyone got anything to say about this? Is it going to be contested? And yeah, there would have been a dramatic moment each time. And um, it wasn't, you know, it was fairly frequent, about, you know, one in ten entries were challenged. Um, and, um, you know... Uh, there was a lot of dodgy dealing um, uh, generated and, and 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 pulled out at this stage of the survey. Right, and then stage four. Okay, stage four. So we now have a checked uh, version of the geographical uh, recension, um, and uh, this is again delivered to the conqueror, and he has another royal assembly this time at Westminster, and it says brilliant. But I now want all of that information reorganised on a completely different plan. At the moment, it's geographically arranged. Now I want to know, have the information organised under the names of major landholders? Major landholders being those who held directly from the king. And um, this is what we see in Exxon Doomsday itself. It's this exact moment um, where a group of, um, a group of scribes are collaborating um, to turn the geographical recension into something which is feudally organised. It's now organised personally by major landholders. They're not editing the material, they're copying it verbatim, but they're uh, transforming it from one organisational form to another. Um, and um, um, because we have the original manuscript, we can actually see how many scribes are writing in Exxon Doomsday and, and therefore we're transported into this hot, sweaty room, probably um, in the summer of 1086, where a group of about 20 scribes are working extraordinarily hard um, to, 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 to meet the next deadline. Um, and um, something very unusual about the manuscript is that the scribes write quite short stints. There are lots of pages or folios of the, of the manuscript where we can see two, three, sometimes even four different scribes writing in a relatively small um, piece of text. And that is because they're, as it were, copying and pasting material out of their source documents into this new order. Um, we call those documents fiefs. Um, and that was one of the principal outputs at this stage. But it wasn't the only one. Um, the scribes in Exxon also, when fiefs came off the production line, appear to have summarised, produced a total, uh, a summary of each fief, giving the you know the key financial or fiscal um, totals relating to each baron, so how much land they had, what its tax liability was, how much money it was generating for them, and so forth. So summaries were being produced. Um, and also there were lists of contested matter. The, the material which had come out of the checking stage was also drawn up in separate documents as well. So that's, that was the output of, of stage four of the survey, um, and documents like Exxon were then taken to a, a very dramatic meeting of the Royal Assembly, this time at um, a place called Old Sarum, um, very atmospheric place in Sal- near Salisbury in Wiltshire, which one can still visit. Um, there's a modern Bailey Castle and um, the remains of a, a, a cathedral now flattened. And in that space, all the landholders of any account, says the Chronicle, came to the king and performed homage to him. Um, and the Chronicle doesn't expressly link these two um, occasions but it seems as good as certain that they were connected because what had happened is that the survey had created now a list of the land holdings of every single major player in the kingdom and they now performed homage to the king for the lands which were recorded in the survey. And what time of year have we got to now? This is the 1st of August, so um, um, it's, um, yeah, eight months flat since the start of the survey. Um, 
Um, and at this point, um, we're not quite there. Um, uh, King William leaves the country, as it turns out, for the last time. Um, he doesn't know this, of course. Um, he's fatally wounded in campaign, um, on campaign in 1087. But in his absence, um, uh, the thing called Doomsday Book is written. And what Doomsday Book is physically is two manuscripts, um, uh, one called Little Doomsday and one called Great Doomsday. Now, Little Doomsday is something like Exxon, um, but it's tidied up. Um, the Probably the, the, the content and shape and material for the eastern counties was a bit messy, and they tidied up and produced a fair copy of it. Um, and that is preserved as Little Doomsday. Meanwhile, a single scribe um, with one helper uh, sat down and took six great reports from six of the circuits and turned it into a single record. And that's the thing we um, know as Great Doomsday Book. The Great and Little Doomsday Book together are what constitutes um, Doomsday Book. Um, Little Doomsday Book could have been done quite quickly. Um, we we can estimate roughly how how long it takes for a scribe to uh, uh, write records. And if they're copying, they can do about 150 lines a day. And using that information, we can guess that Little Doomsday was probably done in, a, um, in the autumn of 1086, let's say by September. It would only have taken a few weeks. Um, and there are six or seven scribes collaborating in that exercise. But Great Doomsday was done by one single, very powerful, very intelligent mind um, who did a number of things to the text. Um, he reorganised the material again so that it was first by Shire and then by Baron. He he used content lists. Um, he numbered the contents lists and then he used subheadings without within the whole of the work. What this has the effect of doing is to make it really easy to use. Um, you can quickly go to any shire and find out what any particular baron had and then see which lands they had. It's, it, it, it's beautifully designed for that purpose. But he was also now trying to make a single book out of, um, at, at, as, as I say, six or seven major records. And so he had to edit the material quite dramatically. Um, comparison with the, the Exxon material shows that he reduced the material by about 40%. And he ditched lots of other material. He ditched the um, um, he ditched the um, contested matter, and he didn't bother with totals and so forth. Um, so this is a powerful organising mind at work, and we guess that um, it took him the best part of a year to do it. Um, probably the best um, best explanation for the fact that he never wrote up Little Doomsday and um, didn't treat the eastern counties is that the news of the Conqueror's death on the 9th of September 1087 came to England before he'd done it. Um, and so in a rushed decision to give everything to the new king, William Rufus, just after his coronation, Little Doomsday book was tarted up to make it kind of look like Great Doomsday. Um, and then everything was ready. Uh, for the new king when, as the Chronicle says, he turned up at the treasury shortly after his coronation. Here was this brand new treasure um, at his disposal. Right. Thank you. That that's um that's that's a, a, a brilliant exposition of the of the of the stages of creation of uh, of this uh, survey and 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 the and the final output. But as you say, this this is really interesting because when we think of Doomsday Book, you know, as, as a layman thinks of Doomsday Book, you think we just think of that 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 book uh, as the as the as the sole thing. But what you're saying is that actually this was a much bigger sort of data collection project with 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 several aims and several uh, several outputs potentially. Yes, that's exactly right, and it seems reasonable. <laughs> that we should have been looking for the um, uh, the explanation for making Doomsday from Doomsday Book itself. That's you know, a very logical um, thing to do. But what has become apparent from this uh, more recent study is it wasn't the only output. Um, and it therefore allows us to, to, to see and register the possibility that this was a more complicated ex, um, exercise, serving lots of different purposes rather than uh, rather than just one. So what? So go on then. You're going to have to give us a bit more on that on, on the on the purposes of, of what of, of this. Service. So what were they trying to achieve um, with this project? Hmm. Well, what had happened um, 
during the course of the 11th century and especially after the conquest was that the king's finances had become more complicated. Um, he had a number of different income streams and to manage each one effectively, you basically needed different types of information organised in different ways. Um, and what the, suge- and the suggestion now is that that's just what the survey delivered. It del- delivered different pieces of information which would be useful for different purposes. Um, that's from the king's perspective, but also there were other um, payoffs, if you like. What we need to remember is that this was done with startling efficiency and speed because everyone participated. And so we need to understand, if you like, why the barons and landholders were willing to participate in the process too. Um, So we've got a complex picture. We need first to think about what the king got out of it, and then also to understand what landholders did too. Shall I start with the king? Um, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go for the king. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, one of the treasures of the English state and one of the reasons why England was an attractive target for conquest in the first place was that it was rich and well-administered and had a land tax. Um, uh, Land taxes existed in many parts of the medieval world, but in Western Europe at this point it was unique in England and um, created the possibility for very substantial additional revenues above the normal normal revenues held by the king through his own estates. So the land tax, and it was called the Geld, um, uh, the land tax known as the Geld was a very significant income stream for the king, but the information with which to collect it could be enhanced and could be improved upon. Um, there were lots of anomalies in the system. It was probably about four generations old in the 1080s, and so... You know, it was beginning to creak with age. Um, it had also been used as an instrument of patronage. Some kings had sort of uh, given away the rights to certain landholders not to pay geld. And so there were holes and anomalies in the system. Um, but in addition, it was beginning to look and feel unfair. There was not a close correlation between what was going on in each manor. That is to say, the economy on the ground wasn't closely aligned with what tax liabilities look like. And brilliantly, what the survey did was to make it possible to align the manorial realities, the, 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 rural, the, the realities of, of the rural economy with tax liabilities. Now, this may sound a bit staggering and um, indeed it's often been contested by historians that it sounds a bit anachronistic. You know, surely this is only what modern governments do. Um, but actually, that's not the case. And it's demonstrable that other fiscal regimes, for example, in China, in Egypt, which had a brilliantly sophisticated tax system in this period, and other parts of the world did uh, align their, try to align through records their um, tax capacity with the economic reality of the ground. And that's what that was what's going on in our first recension. The geographically arranged recension um, was intended to maximize yields from the geld. Okay, so that's so that's the king basically getting more more money. Um was there anything else in it for the for the king? Um plenty more to come. Then it was checked. Um and this is a period where um there's all kinds of money to be made out of justice. Um, uh, the king rarely made decisions or gave justice without taking um, a cut of the proceeds, um, essentially bribes for it. And we see the first time we have any sight of the detail of royal income, for example, in Henry I's pipe roll, um, 1129 to 30, there's very large amounts of money being changed for what's called help in judicial matters um, uh, and other things, um, clearly bribes. So a list of, um, a long list of disputed land holdings to be resolved was potentially very profitable in itself. Um, And in fact, the Chronicle says that one of the last things the king did before he left the kingdom was to take more money, whether it was just or otherwise, from his landholders. So, you know, it looks as if he was beginning that process before he left. But I think the idea was to sort of separate out this complicated um, list of of, of uncertain tenures for a, a big judicial ex- exercise to come. Now, 
a really important thing to grasp about about um, making money like this is that the king could decide not to collect it. And that's the other thing that Henry I's bite roll reveals is that it's really easy to shift financial capital to political capital by not collecting your debts um, and not forcing landholders to pay. So uh, it, it could be profitable in more than one way. Um, so that's two pretty useful outputs already. But there was a further, much more unique and ingenious um, revenue-raising strategy still to come. And this arises from something which was quite unique to what had happened in England after the conquest, which is very simply that the king had claimed all of England as his own personal land. He had inherited it as a gift, so says his his legitimating propaganda from Edward the Confessor, and only he therefore had the right to assign it to new landholders, and they were in effect his vassals, his tenants. Um, And this very extensive um, and distinctive idea of royal lordship was potentially incredibly profitable because what it meant was that every single time any parcel of property changed hands, for example, through inheritance when anyone died um, or through any other type of exchange, um, the king could take a cut from that process. And I think that was what was going on in the later stages of the Doomsday Survey. The information was being now reorganised to manage a very newly extensive and intensive form of royal lordship, which generated revenues on an even bigger scale than the land tax. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Both ideas and personnel were very European. Um... And yet at the same time, this is distinctive English project in a number of respects too. It built on quite complex and elaborate structures of government which the Normans had inherited from the Anglo-Saxons. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You've pointed up the fact that the, the king had um, particular control over, over, over the land and, and the barons. So, and, and you mentioned earlier that it might, it might seem unlikely that barons, that the leading tenants, would be that keen to, to tell the king exactly what they held because that would further strengthen his, his knowledge. So what was, what was in it for them? Yeah, I mean, if one takes, if you go back to the Christmas court and imagine how the barons at the, you know, the backbenchers, as it were, reacted um, as news of what was going to be done came through. There must have been some pretty sharp intakes of breath, and I would have thought some pretty strong voices were raised that, yeah, they were being asked to furnish information which would allow the king to strengthen his fiscal grip over them. So why on earth did they do it? As I say, the thing couldn't have been done without their help, and they, they appear to have... 
um, cooperated very fully and very rapidly. Say so why? And here's the answer: after 20 years of of upheaval in in conquered England, after an enormous amount of confusion and of land grabbing and of more legitimate um, processes of, of acquisition, the barons wanted security. They wanted to have a list of their lands. They wanted to have this confirmed as publicly as possible. They wanted royal endorsement for it. And that is just what the survey gave them. In fact, it, it, it gave gave them in each of the processes that I've, procedures and stages I've outlined, it strengthened their title each time a little bit further. Um, so, I mean, the first stage was all about the relationship to title and the and the land tax. The second stage was done in public. Uh, it was done on oath, um, just like land charters were were sanctioned by um, um, by God ultimately. Um, and um, the material was then organised into lists under the names of individual landholders, so that they were given something which amounted to a confirmation charter. And here it's relevant that instruments known as confirmation charters were beginning to circulate very rapidly. They were all the rage in northern France, in Normandy in particular. Sometimes they're, they're known as pancarts. But what they amount to is just a list of all of your property, which can be useful both for administrative purposes uh, and also for, for judicial purposes, knowing, knowing what you had. And then finally, of course, um, they were all brought together and performed homage to the king. Um, and so he was personally endorsing these these transactions and added up, and it was probably just, well, it was just enough to persuade these hard-nosed barons that it was probably a good idea to cooperate and they're getting something worthwhile in return. And 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 given the um, the, the the sort of the uh, the defensive situation at the time, the the, the threat of military invasion, um, is there also um, something um, specific uh, militarily that uh, the, the king or the barons were getting out of this that was going to enable them to to um, to stand up to the potential um, uh, Scandinavian uh, incursion? Um, I don't I don't think that um, this this exercise was particularly intended to improve the administration um, of um, military arrangements. They were fairly crude and simple. Um, um, each landholder knew how many knights he had to um, furnish when the king went on on expedition. Um, and the survey itself says very little about knight service um, and military arrangements, either before or after the conquest. But what's absolutely clear is that um, all military expeditions were very expensive. And that's the connection between um, the survey and military, uh, and military matters that, um, I mean, in 1085, we know that the conqueror had hired a very large number of mercenaries. And that would have focused his mind on his financial resources. Um, what this exercise was doing was generating material which would allow the government to, to to generate more money, and most of that money would be spent on war. Now, so having looked at all this in in the round, do you and 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 uh, and reviewed the fact that it was a larger survey beyond just Doomsday Book itself? Do you get a sense that it was actually organised with Doomsday Book being the intended final output? Um, in other words, um, I suppose I'm wondering if if William the Conqueror hadn't died in 1087. Mm. Would it? You said that perhaps little doomsday book might have been written into great doomsday. But would it would it have looked different if he'd lived to ten ninety or something? Would there have been further things that uh, that would have been achieved? That's a great question, and um, um, yeah, I think more of the things for which the whole survey was uh, designed for would have been used. So there isn't clear evidence that the Geld system the land tax system was reorganised um, on the basis of the material generated by the survey. Um, but that's, in a sense, completely unsurprising because, as you say, the king died in 1087 and his sons were, were contesting the throne. So this was a politically sensitive moment and the last thing a new king would have wanted to do was to try to push through taxation reform. Um, uh, so um, what we see instead, and what we do have much richer evidence for, is um, the material in Doomsday being used to manage the intensity of royal lordship. 
um, the inheritance tax side of the um, of the equation. Um, and it becomes increasingly clear, in particular, from even, even religious houses, bishoprics and monasteries were having to pay these inheritance taxes. Um, because every time a bishop or an abbot um, died, the king would send it as accountants using the doomsday information and start um, uh, extracting the revenues from from those religious houses until a new bishop or abbot was appointed, and of course uh, William Rufus would uh, rub his hands together and say, "Oh, terribly sorry to hear about the death of, you know, the bishop of X, Y, or Z. We must take our time over choosing this very important replacement. How about five or six years?" Um, and meanwhile, the, ev- the revenues would come cascading in. So what we do have crystal clear evidence for is is the intensity of royal lordship ratcheting up um, once this material was in the king's hand. And it's no surprise, therefore, that when, for example, Henry I came to the throne in 1100, he issued a series of promises. His coronation charter is full of promises, and most of them are about um, not relinquishing his new rights or powerful rights of royal lordship, which doomsday facilitates, but rather using them less intensively and doing it with more conciliatory um, ways and in, with greater discussion with the barons. Um, you, you mentioned earlier the um, the situation in China and Egypt and, and landholding and surveys there and, and, and the Carolingian situation and the charters and things like that. Um, I'm, I'm wondering... Now that you've looked at the project and and uh, and understood it in a new way, can you do you sense how unique uh, uh, a data gathering exercise Doomsday was in terms of all the other the other ways that people were trying to understand the world um, in the 11th century and earlier? Mm. Um, well, first thing to say is it is it is not unique, um, and that wherever you have effective land taxes, you have you have to have effective methods of surveying. Um, and so there, there are plenty of medieval or um, ancient and medieval regimes which did this. Um, of course, the Roman Empire did it brilliantly. Um, and indeed, in the late Roman period, we see precisely the kind of tax reforms which aligned liability with the ability to pay. And that happened elsewhere. Um, uh, Egypt is a particularly fascinating case because tax liabilities changed every year depending on how much the Nile flooded. And so they quite often surveyed the country twice to, to make sure that they had their liabilities right. You know, there were breathtakingly sophisticated regimes out there. I don't think England, um, the conqueror's regime, borrowed their ideas directly from them, but this is more as it were, common sense being applied to, to similar situations. You need to get data to, um, to, to make this regime work better. But it did draw on um, deeply on ideas which were had a deep history in Europe. Um, you, you mentioned that Charlemagne and his successors, the Carolingians and France, rulers of France and Germany um, in the 8th and 9th centuries, had made... Um, very complex and sophisticated surveys, not only of their own estates, but of, uh, of of others too. And there had been a habit of inventory writing among major landholders, many of them preserved in monasteries and bishoprics. So the habit of survey taking for fiscal and administrative purposes was kind of deeply embedded in French culture. And some of those records, although they were written in the 8th and 9th century, were still being updated and annotated in the 10th and 11th in some of the areas where the personnel who wrote Doomsday came from, so there's a there's a deep French hinterland, and um, and as I say, confirmation charters of of the land holdings of 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 individual landholders were becoming very fashionable in Normandy and elsewhere in northern France. Um, so this is this is a European project, a fundamentally European project in a number of ways, and of course the other dimension to that is the people who wrote um, uh, the doomsday texts that we have, um, and our recent study has established that um, uh, the scribes who wrote Exxon were trained in Normandy and elsewhere in northern France, in Lotharingia, in northwest Germany, in Flanders. Um, so both. Ideas and personnel were very European. Um, and yet at the same time, this is distinctive English project in a number of respects too. It built on quite complex and elaborate structures of government, which 
the Normans had inherited from the Anglo-Saxons. It couldn't have been done without the geld assessment lists, the tax, tax lists, which were very English. Um, it was English structures of government which made it possible. And then finally, um, the whole kind of intensification of royal lordship thing was a unique function of a unique event, the conquest of England in 1066. So this is both a distinctively English and fundamentally European project. Um, I'm just going to quote you just a, a line from your article. Um, There's overwhelming evidence that it was made, checked and rearranged in seven months flat while a heavy guild was collected and accounted for and that Doomsday Book was finished about 12 months later. So you're, you're, you're laying out just the speed and rapidity of, of the exercise. Mm. So that means, therefore, there must have been some sort of administrative or logistical genius in the background. Mm. Who, who was it? <laughs> um, a lovely question. And... Um... I just turn it into the plural. I think there were a group of very smart young things in the conquerors regime who figured this out. Um, there's been various attempts to find the the mastermind, the genius behind Doomsday, um, uh, but I think it was a group of several individuals who had been not many of them. Um, uh, uh, perhaps um, the king has a dozen chaplains operating for him at any one time. And then there are about a dozen bishops. That will provide the core of um, uh, the administrative document production um, for this regime. But that small inner group have been figuring out why it was difficult to document the king's revenues, how it, how it could be possible to generate more and to account for it more um, more easily. That group, I think, had the blueprints for Doomsday compiled for some years before Christmas 1085. Um, at that point, um, one of the leading figures, uh, I think we can be confident about who ran the Doomsday survey, it was the Bishop of Durham, and his name was William, and he'd been one of the leading administrators of, of, of the Congress regime in the 1080s. Um, and he's also ideally situated um, to run the survey because Durham was then beyond the northerly limits of the survey. So he was a kind of independent outsider, if you like. So we, we, we have the genius behind the rollout of Doomsday, um, um, but I think a, a group, um, we need to think about the men behind the survey, not the man behind the survey in terms of its conception. Recalling the fact that William the Conqueror was able to uh, amass um, uh, in a similarly constrained time period 20 years earlier his inflation uh, army and fleet to, to cross the channel in 1066 to, to, uh, to defeat King Harold. Um, he was clearly a man who was able to get stuff done. What does, what does this tell us about William the Conqueror, if, if anything? Yes, um, it is a yet another indication of his extraordinary energy and drive, his ability to 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 get things done. Um, I think you're right to to put this alongside the invasion um, as being an extraordinary logistical exercise, um, and um, um, so. Um, yeah, so it, it could only have been done because because the enterprise had his personal backing and because his authority was gigantic. Um, between the, the the conquest itself and the taking of of the Doomsday Survey, there had been one other astonishing administrative feat, which was to organise the more or less complete displacement of the English aristocracy in a way which was relatively organised. Uh, I've mentioned that about one in one in ten of the property um, listed in Doomsday was contested. Well, if you think about it, that's remarkably few. About 10% of the land and wealth of England is still being disputed, which means that 90% wasn't. And um, I think one of the most remarkable feats of government, the Congress regime, was not the making of Doomsday, but describing the, uh, but, but organising the transfers of land in a relatively orderly way which Doomsday itself describes. So this was a regime which really could get things done. And um, yes, I mean, it's it's inescapable. Here we are um, discussing this in the early weeks of January. This was the conqueror getting Doomsday done. But it wasn't the very first thing that he had um, achieved on a, on, a, on a massive logistical scale. 
That's, that's a fascinating conversation. Stephen, is there anything important that uh, that we've missed? Any any um, observations that you'd uh, like to, to finish up on that, uh, that I haven't given you a, a chance to talk about? You mentioned per- perhaps the, the fact that this, the, re- the project has been, uh, has been a, a big collaborative exercise that lots of people have been involved with. Um, yes, I mean, it's, cru- it's crucial to register that this has been a, an, a massively collaborative exercise. Indeed, most of the insights have come from very, very detailed study of the manuscript itself, um, in particular Dr. Fran Alvarez-Lopez produced a wonderful line-by-line study who I, and identified every single stint and contribution of each of two dozen scribes. Um, uh, and, um, and Frank Thorne produced a wonderful edition and text um, of the manuscript. Um, and there have been others who've, uh, who've participated in, in this extraordinary collaborative um, project, um, which has which has revealed a great deal. Thank you very much. Well, uh, Professor Stephen Baxter, that's been a, a very interesting uh, guide to the latest uh, state of play on Doomsday Book, and listeners can uh, can access that English historical review article. So it's 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 readily available on the internet. I'll put a note in the show notes about it. But it's also worth mentioning that uh, Professor Baxter has written uh, a slightly more accessible version, perhaps, of, of some of his uh, views on Doomsday Book for our website, historyextra.com, where you can uh, access some material there too. Um, Thank you. Yeah. And and if I, if I may add, um, the if you're interested in looking at Exxon Doomsday, it is also freely available as a website um, with facsimile images, text and translation. And and finally, um, is is there a is there a book coming out uh, as a result of this work as well? Thank you. Yes, it's going to be called Making Doomsday: The Conqueror's Survey in Its Context, and um, uh, again, collaboratively written, um, and that will hopefully be coming out in 2021. Professor Stephen Baxter, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That was Professor Stephen Baxter. You can read more from him about Doomsday Book on our website. Just search for Doomsday Book in the search bar of historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow to hear Frank McDonough discussing his new book on the downfall of Hitler. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.